Welcome to the Great Loop Radio Podcast, brought to you by America's Great Loop Cruisers Association. We're dedicated to sharing Great Loop information and inspiration with those actively cruising, planning for, or dreaming about a Great Loop adventure. I'm Kim Russo. I'm the director of AGLCA. Today we are have a great topic. We're going to talk a little bit about how we can make our loop a little bit more green. And even for those of you who maybe that's not one of your hot button issues, there's still a lot you can do that's actually helping yourself too, as well as the oceans. Um, we're going to be talking to seakeepers.org, which is a great organization I became aware of recently um, that is really doing a lot for the oceans and working with private yachts to help with some of their ex experiments. They've also got a green guide to boating, which we're gonna discuss in some detail today. So before I bring them in, I wanna take a moment as always to recognize and thank our Admiral sponsors. Um, these are the businesses that support AGLCA at the highest level. They are Curtis Stokes and Associates, Great Loop Yacht Sales, Passage Maker Trawler Fest, Skipper Bob Publications, and Waterway Guide Media. As always, we encourage our listeners to support these businesses that support the Great Loop. And without further delay, I would like to introduce you to Aubrey Keith. Aubrey is the Program Development Manager for Seakeepers.org and also Tony Gilbert. Tony is the Chief Programs Officer for Seakeepers.org. So welcome to both of you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for having us. Yeah, you know, I first, um, I think I had come across your website a few times, but not too long ago at a uh, Trawler Fest. Um, they kind of were, you were a little bit of the buzz there, and I guess Aubrey had maybe visited. Um, so I'm glad to actually get to speak to you both in person. Um, first of all, tell us a little bit about seakeepers.org and what's your core mission? Yeah, absolutely. I can uh, I can start there. Um, so our full name, the International Seakeeper Society, um, is, is, you know, just like the name states, we are international, although our uh, headquarters is here in Miami, Florida. Um, we've been able to sort of have a presence all over. Um, and so being a nonprofit, uh, our, our mission, our charitable mission is to facilitate marine research, conservation efforts, and education, and just kind of helping those that are lacking some resources uh, that need that um, and, and linking them with those that have that. So what does that mean? So Basically, we link the yachting and boating community with the scientific and academic communities. Um, and so when it comes to research and, and trying to learn more about our, our environment, our marine environment, and how best to preserve it in its, you know, in the way that it's supposed to be, that it in the way that we've enjoyed it for so long, um, you need you need science for that. And um so that's just, you know, basically if if there's a scientist and they have a proposal and they want to research either, you know, uh, coral bleaching or um, shark conservation, whale behavior and conservation, all, all these different topics, um, you know, I just, I take a look at the proposal, I see where they need to be, how many of them there are, and if there is a boat in our network that's willing to take them and accommodate them for whatever time they need. So maybe they need a week out on the water. And and really, I mean, yes, they're getting the benefit of having some time out on the water and not having to charter a vessel themselves, which oftentimes they can't afford that. They just don't have the funds. Um, but really, the the uh, the crew and or the owner slash operators of these boats really get a, an awesome experience out of it, too. Um, so that's that's one facet of Sea Keepers. That's what we call our scientist led expeditions. 
Um, and then we have a bunch of other facets. We have citizen science, which again, it's utilizing people and their boats um, for research purposes. But in this case, they don't have to take on a scientist or their team. Um, these are things that they can do themselves or the crew can do with minimal to no training. Uh, we just kind of give them the tools to do it and, and they can go out and cruise as they would um, and just kind of collect these samples or the, the, these data uh, on their own. Um, you know, send it back and then we, we give it to the appropriate scientist who's, who's, who's studying that. Um, and then we also have uh, our educational outreach, which is something, again, we're, we're, we're kind of doing it a little more locally right now, but we hope to expand. But that's taking like things like floating classrooms where we take kids out on the water uh, to give them a hands-on experience um, in learning about marine ecology, why it's important, and, and again, how, how best to uh, enjoy the marine environment. Um, we're also helping high school students that maybe want to take a career track uh, in that area um, and just kind of giving them some of the experience that they might need. Um, and then uh, community engagement, which, you know, is is basically getting the community involved in, uh, you know, doing things like beach cleanups, um, dive cleanups, and there's a lot of underwater debris as well, um, and island cleanups too. Um, and, uh, you know, yes, it's it's good to clean up a beach and maybe you'll get you know, 100 or 200 pounds of trash in a day if, you, if you're out there long enough. Um, but really, that's not the end game when it comes to our community engagement. Really, we want to, again, use it as a teachable moment and kind of show people, okay, well, what was most of what you picked up? And maybe those are things that you can use less of on your day to day. And, and that way, less of it will end up as litter or garbage uh, on the beach and then later in the ocean. So um, yeah, it, it's a lot, but we're very proud of <laughs> the fact that we try to cover almost all the aspects of both, again, um, marine science and marine conservation through those different channels. Um, so yeah, in a nutshell, that is our mission and how we accomplish it. Yeah, and it's it's a fabulous mission, but it's also really well aligned, I think, with AGLCA, which is one of the reasons I was excited to have this conversation, um, because whether or not loopers consider themselves environmentalists, they are generally very passionate about the health of our waterways. Um, and we've looked in the past about how how could we get you know that next generation of people who are passionate about the waterways involved now. Um, so the floating classroom idea is really cool, um, but the fact that you can pair up individual boats. Um, with citizen scientists or scientists who really want to, um, you know, do an, a project on the waterway but don't have access to a boat um, is really, I think, intriguing and something a lot of our members would be interested in. So tell us a little bit more, um, you know, about how loopers can get involved and maybe, you know, an example or two of a private vessel that took uh, some scientists aboard to run a project and what that was like. Sure. Um, well, uh, you know, there's probably a number of ways. And uh, to give you an example of a looper who has been um, on, on a scientific or hosted a scientific expedition, um, her name was Jolene. She, she's got a great 42 foot um, power cat and named Katniss. Uh, that was a great boat. I mean, it, it was able to accommodate four scientists plus myself for a few days. Um, I'd out in the dry Tortugas um, and then back all the way up the Florida reef track. And they were uh, researching different coral species and which ones kind of um, are more resilient to warming waters, which as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, 
the waters are getting pretty warm. Um, and not, not all corals can can survive that, but some can. So what was really cool about that is they were just seeing, okay, so which are the ones that are more resilient? And then maybe we can uh, propagate that and, and and introduce those into, into the places that are a little more at risk. Um, because again, as we know, as being boaters, I don't know how many loopers like to dive, but when you go down there and you see nothing but just, I don't know, dead, lifeless bleached coral um and 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 not only that but the exodus of of the species all the fish that call that that that, that reef home um then there's not really much reason to be down there um so so the fact that we are she she helped these scientists uh, study how to best preserve and and maybe heal some some damaged coral reefs that, that was pretty cool um and and that was just one example i mean uh loopers i know that they not only are they going through certain rivers and everything but you know they, they're in the gulf of mexico mexico correct and in, in the correct yeah. in the gulf stream and yeah so i mean these are all places that i've gotten proposals for in the past saying hey i, I need to be in this area for this number of days do you know anyone that's going to be there and you know while i might not right offhand um who knows maybe there's some some people out there doing the loop that you know can maybe slow down for a couple of days or a few days and and do something cool and then continue on their way um and uh that's just again like i said uh, that's our scientist led expedition side of things but citizen science is something where they don't even have to stop i mean they can just keep going and what they can do is um, help map the bottom of the ocean. Um, it's basically what, what they call bathymetry. Um, and, you know, you do it every day uh, without recording it, but you have a depth sounder. And mm -hmm. everywhere you go, you're, you're looking to see how deep is it? Are there any navigational hazards? Well, what this does, and it's called a, uh, a data logger, and something that we provide to the boat, and it just records that. So at every GPS point, um, whatever the depth reads, the data logger records that, and then we send that data to the International Hydrographic Organization. They're the ones creating this unified kind of general bathymetric map of the of the ocean. So um, that's that's really cool, and you'd be con you know basically contributing to this global effort uh, that that we have going on now. There's a lot of boats that have signed up, but we could always use more. And um, and yeah, so I mean, those are just a couple examples of both scientist-led expeditions or citizen science that they can get involved in. Um, I don't know, Aubrey, is there anything that comes to mind? <laughs> maybe, maybe I left that. I, know, I guess too, just the, the easiest way for um, loopers to get involved with that would be just to go to our website. And we have an application on there that they can sign up to become a Discovery Yacht. Just let us know what you're interested in and we'll be able to point you in the right direction and get you set up with the tools that you would need for either the citizen science project that you're interested in participating with or just keep you on our radar so that we know that you are interested in hosting a scientist-led expedition and we can have you know, kind of your general itinerary on mind so that if a request comes in, we, we know who to reach out to. So that's a great exactly. place to start is just signing up as a discovery yacht. That's perfect. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad, uh, Tony, that you brought up um, Katniss, one of our looper boats, um, because that and the, it being a cat is a little bit different than some looper boats. We, we don't have a ton of cats, um, but mm -hmm. the length 42 is, is pretty common for a looper boat. And I think the perception um, when people hear, you know, a crew of four people coming aboard is that, oh, my gosh, my boat's not big enough for that. But you're um, your scientists don't necessarily require a whole lot of space or comfort, do they? So for example, I'm on a 41 foot boat 
we've got one extra stateroom that is a pretty um, cozy, <laughs> I think uh, maybe a queen, maybe a double bed. So, um, but you know, if they're not too picky about their accommodations, we've got a pull out sofa. Like tell us a little bit about what you would need um, on the boat for it really to work for you. Absolutely. So, you know, each, each project and, and expedition is a little different. Um, sometimes the equipment that they need is minimal. Um, mm -hmm. And if you just have a good little storage area uh, or, you know, some, some space on deck where you strap it down, no problem. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you're absolutely right to say that. I mean, these are people that are used to being in tiny little bunks as mm -hmm. it is. Um, man, I remember one story about uh, a group of, I think it was five or six of them on a center console style boat uh, down in Mexico. And I said, how did you sleep? Oh, we slept outside. We slept in the rain. Um, so what about showers? And, oh, no showers for the whole time. I mean, this <laughs> is something that they're used to roughing it. So really anything helps. And um, but yes, uh, you know, you'd be surprised what what you have and what you have to offer. Right. Uh, if you just kind of, you know, work with it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And as far as kind of the citizen scientist and the bathymetric mapping project that you talked about, um, you mentioned that you provide the device that kind of um, does that mapping automatically. Does the person whose boat it is have to do something to send the data or is it all completely automated? Um, I can it's, take this one. Yeah, so, yeah, go for it. Yeah, our, our current loggers, um, it's about this big and it plugs into the back of your NEMA 2000 into the backbone. Um, we also have ones for uh, the older O, o um, see, I think it's one eight, oh, one eight, eight three. something. Yeah. Model, which then would just be hardwired in. Um, and the one for the NEMA 2000s that has a small micro USB card in the back of it. And so the users would then just have to unplug that USB card or push that out and put it onto their computer, upload the data, and they just send it directly to us through mm -hmm. WeTransfer, which is a data sharing for large files. It's a free service, and they can just email that to us whenever they're at shore. But about every other month is what we ask our users to um, to unplug the SD card and to send us that data Um yeah, and the other the other style of logger has a USB stick, so that would just be recording the data on there. Um, the nice thing about it too is that your data can remain completely anonymous. You don't have to um, have your boat's name attached to it, so you can have this data that you sent us completely anonymous, or we can get recognition for it. But um, all that gets sent to the International Hydro Hydrographic Organization in building this map. Excellent. Yeah. So I do want to dive into your green guide to boating because there's lots of really great suggestions there. And particularly from newer boaters, I get a lot of questions about how they can do this um, and, and be friendly to the ocean and to the marine life that is there. So um, I want to jump into that. Let's take a quick moment and play a message from one of our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll shift over to the green guide to boating. So we'll be back in a moment. Curtis Stokes & Associates is a yacht brokerage company that specializes in great loop capable boats. Curtis Stokes is a supporter of AGLCA at the Admiral level. If you're looking to buy or sell a great loop veteran from a trusted and knowledgeable broker, visit the company on the web at curtisstokes.net, email curtisstokes at curtisstokes.net, or call 954-684-0218. 
Did you know that every mile of the Great Loop is covered by Skipper Bob guides? Its mile-by-mile -mile format is a great planning tool and essential at the helm. On the most popular routes and side trips, Skipper Bob covers preparation, navigation, bridges and locks, and the best places to visit. Skipper Bob guides are updated each year, and its website keeps you current with navigation alerts and cruising news. To check it out, go to skipperbob.net. Skipper Bob is a proud Admiral Sponsor of AGLCA. We're back on the Great Loop Radio podcast. Today we are talking with seakeepers.org. Uh, We've got Aubrey and Tony here, and they're kind of filling, it, filling us in on what this great organization is doing for our oceans and how loopers can get involved. So we've talked about some of the um, research-type projects, which is really fascinating, and I hope a lot of you will jump on that opportunity. Um, but I also want to talk about the Green Guide to Boating, because particularly for our newer boaters, we get lots of questions about this and, um, you know, whether or not you are trying to be more green in your everyday life, um, being a green boater does not just mean you're being kind to the ocean. You're also kind of being kind to your boat <laughs> and often kind of kind to your wallet as well. Um, so let's kind of jump into that a little bit. Um, you know, Aubrey, I don't know if this is one that you're better to answer, but talk to us a little bit more, um, you know, kind of in general terms, how do green actions like reducing fuel usage, talk about how that can benefit obviously loopers, but also the environment at the same time. Yeah. So I guess like the obvious answer to this and how it could benefit a looper is that it's going to save you money. So mm -hmm. if you're reducing your fuel usage, you're, you know, that's going to be friendlier on the wallet, um, but also reduces your CO2 emissions. So that creates less of a strain on coastal habitats that loopers are out there trying to enjoy areas like mangroves and seagrass beds that work as huge stores for carbon dioxide. So if we're putting less of that into those coastal habitats that are, are storing it for us, we're, we're not going to be putting as much of a strain on that environment. Right. So, uh, um, some of our loopers who have been out there for a while probably know what they can do to cut down on the fuel usage, but for some who may be newer and are still kind of maybe not don't have the boat yet, what are some of the easy ways they can go ahead and reduce the amount of fuel that they're using? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of things that you can do to reduce your fuel consumption. Um, one is just run your boat at optimal levels. You know, don't run it all the way as hard as it can go to its top speed. Typically, you kind of want to run your boat at about 60% to 80% of what your top speed is, and that'll help to really reduce and optimize your fuel usage. Um, you also want to make sure you keep your, your hull clean. Um, that can create, if you have a lot of stuff hanging on the bottom, that can create a lot of drag to your vessel. Um, things like just the weight of your vessel, everything that you store on board. So if you're always going out with a full tank rather than planning your passage, you know, full water tank, full tank of gas, everything just full to the brim, you know, full provisions, that's going to use a bit more fuel because you've got a little bit more weight that you're trying to transport around. Um, simple things like when you're at anchor, maybe if you could use stuff like uh, solar panels to run your appliances and your air conditioning, you know, use that battery rather than having to run a generator can help you reduce your fuel. And also just make sure that you're maintaining your engine quite well, you know, make sure you have clean fuel filters and can put additives in your fuel to make sure it's cleaner. So that just is, you know, increasing your efficiency. And, and these are all great ideas. And I love that they're included in your green guide to boating because a lot of people would just consider this 
normal boat maintenance, <laughs> but it makes such a difference to the environment and to the amount of fuel you're using. And it's, it's just a new way to frame it and gives us just mm -hmm. another reason to really, you know, do the things we should be doing on our boat anyway. And, um, you know, every boat's going to find that sweet spot on the fuel economy, Again, great for the wallet, but also great for the environment. So anything else loopers can do to help offset their carbon footprint while they're on the loop? Um, um, one, oh. um sorry. I'll no, you can go for that, Tony. No, I, it just something that that you reminded me when when you're saying when when you're at anchor, you can use a general, uh, I'm sorry, solar panels uh, and to not run your generator. However, when you're at, um, in a marina, when you're at dock, you know, use shore power, which again, you know, I'm sure a lot of people do anyway, but mm -hmm. it's something that, you know, helps you save your, your diesel and your generator usage. Um, one thing that I was thinking also is, you know, some kind of, um, uh, what's it called a wind turbine, you know, some, some boats have that. Um, but again, these are, these are little things that, yeah, I'm not saying power your entire boat with it or, mm -hmm. you know, it, but, but it's, it's kind of like if you use it in conjunction with and just, you know, shut off your generator every once in a while and just kind of get your electrical from things like solar solar panels or wind turbines that could really help. Um, but but yeah, and, and uh, you know, some some people might be a little skeptical of bottom paints and say, oh, well, you know, that's not great for the environment, too. And it really depends. I mean, yeah, there's some that are copper heavy and maybe that's not the best. Um, there's there's alternatives to that. And then, and last but not least is just, you know, you could always use a little bit of elbow grease. And if you're bored one day and, and you, you want to maybe just scrape that, that biofoul off of your, off the bottom of your hole. Um, mm -hmm. You know, my dad has a boat. He, I, I see him do it all the time. He, he kind of doesn't know how to relax. So even when he should be relaxing, <laughs> um, he's, he'll be down there scraping. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and it's just, it kind of, again, saves you maybe another trip to, to the to the yard to get it painted if you just take it off yourself um and and you know yeah we've talked a lot about carbon footprint and mm -hmm. and uh usage but um you know there's a lot of other things that that in boating that you know one just doesn't really take into account but like water we all need water we need to drink it um you know we need it for plumbing purposes but um for drinking water you know, if you don't have a good water maker on board, then what do you have to do? You have to stock up on single-use plastic water bottles. Mm -hmm. And for a long enough voyage, you're going to have to have, you know, a good amount. And it's, you know, it's not to say that you shouldn't be drinking water. No, you should. But I would say, and I would strongly encourage people to go out there and get some, get yourself a good water maker. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I was just on an expedition on a boat that had a water maker and, it just, it desalinates and what you get is just pure H2O. It's perfect. It's perfectly drinkable. Um, and um, yeah, so, you know, just something to consider, uh, you know, and, and other single use plastic alternatives as well, which, you know, we, we, we sort of have a lot of examples of that, I think in the green guide to boating, as well as other resources on our, on our website. Yeah. And we actually, there are some places on the loop where using a water maker is not real practical um, because you're in rivers as opposed to, you know, the ocean and salt. Um, but we've converted to five gallon recyclable, reusable bottles um, that we exchange to refill. Right. And it has saved us a ton of plastic on the boat. And it's, it was pretty easy. I didn't do it myself, but Michael, Michael hooked up um, a feeder that takes a line of, takes from that water bottle to a separate spigot on the galley sink. And it's worked really well for us. And those bottles are pretty easy to come by even when you're traveling. 
Um, one thing that worries me every time we fill up is the potential for a fuel spill, even a small amount when you're fueling up mm -hmm. the boat. And I know you kind of cover that in the green guide as well. Um, so what are some practices you would suggest to avoid spilling some fuel when you're refueling? Well, I think the best practice for that is to really know your vessel, you know, know what your tank's capacity is have an accurate measurement of how much fuel you have in your tank so that you know how much you can take on. And then when you're fueling, always keep, you know, spill kits nearby. The oil absorption pads are great just to wrap around the uh, the pump while you're using it in case there's any drips that come down the side. Um, and also fuel docks should have a large supply of like all the absorbent socks and pads on hand in case there are spills and incidents. Um, one thing that might seem a bit counterintuitive to, to new boaters is, is just don't use a detergent or soap to make it go away. I know we've seen some ecological disasters of oil spills where they're like, oh, Dawn dish soap, spray in the water, it'll make it disperse. That's actually kind of counterproductive. It What it does is it actually breaks down the oils into smaller pieces, making it harder to clean up and more toxic to marine life. So it's still there. It's just in smaller, less noticeable pieces rather than spread evenly out on the surface that could easily just be wiped up with a oil absorption pad or contained by some booms that the fuel dock might have on hand to help contain and clean that up. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I've seen some very experienced uh, boaters who know their boat well kind of listen, uh, put their ear right by the, the fill spot on their boat as they're fueling, um, and they can hear when it's almost full. I've also seen some boats with fuel whistles that'll start to whistle when the tank gets almost full. Um, if you're not confident with those, it's a great idea to just know what your, your tank holds and how much you've burned and, you know, not be so worried about filling it to that last spot um, that it overflows at all. But interesting that you brought up um, kind of the, the detergents, because another question I get asked a lot from new boaters in particular is concerns about gray water. And of course, gray water is being flushed out of the boat. Um, and I say flushed, it's not sewage. Um, the gray water, of course, for anybody who's new to this is the water that's coming out of, you know, your shower your kitchen sink um, and then leaving the boat. Most boats do not have a gray water holding tank. So anything you're using to wash dishes or yourself is uh, being sent out into the water. So what are your recommendations there to make sure that we are, you know, leaving minimal damage, if any, to what we're leaving behind? Yeah, so for the gray water, yeah, it is a bit trickier with the, you guys on the smaller vessels and you don't have holding tanks to be able to treat that water. So you have to be really conscious of what you're putting down the drain, you know, what you're using, what kind of soaps you're using and making sure that they're non-toxic. Really look for those parabens because parabens are going to be one of the more toxic things that, you know, prevents animals from breathing and reproducing the way they're meant to. So um, yeah, just, just, be super careful with what you put down the drain. I mean, if, if you can, you know, find alternative hand soaps and dish soaps that, you know, are, are completely non-toxic, that would be the best way when you're washing dishes in your hands. Mm -hmm. Any um, particular brands or anything we should look for to know that it's really non-toxic and is going to be not harmful to the marine life? Oh, yeah. So there is one brand that we have used before called Stream to Sea, and mm -hmm. they make a lot of um, different products like sunscreens, but they also have shampoos and conditioners that are completely reef safe and biodegradable, non-toxic, paraben-free, 
Um, they have a whole big line of, of different products, but stream to see is one that we do recommend. And we've um, used their sunscreens and things like that before. Mm-hmm. I've used their leave-in conditioner. It's pretty decent. Mm-hmm. What about um, products that you might be using to wash the boat? Because all that's going to end up in the water as well. So um, any recommendations there? I don't have any specific brands to recommend, mm-hmm. Tony. You might. Um, I yeah. would just say that you know we're at a good time of awareness that so many brands out there are putting out eco-friendly products. Um, of course, as as a buyer, you need to be aware of greenwashing and actually try and look at what the ingredients are rather than just seeing one that says organic might not always be paraben free or it might not always be like toxin free so um yeah just just try and do your research on them but there's so many options out there for that nowadays fortunately and and the one that i'm aware of um is a a brand called washdown so um you know uh, as that's basically the, the one that I've heard of, but it's supposed to be one of the better ones in terms of um, washing your, your deck. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned a little bit about bottom paint, you know, to avoid the ones that are s- super copper heavy, but any, uh, any suggestions on um, either bottom paint or some of the newer anti-fouling uh, technology that might be a better choice? Um, so, I mean, most bottom paints use what are called biocides to basically just kill whatever is growing on your hole. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with it is that as, as those biocides released from your hole paint, it can be really harmful to marine life. So again, with the whole, uh, you know, making more eco-friendly products, a lot of marine paint companies are now offering new types of eco paints that don't contain any biocides mm-hmm. in them. And, um, one example of that would be like a, a foul release coating, so rather than just poisoning any creature that comes into contact with the hole, this can be like a silicone or floral polymer based paint, which can make a smooth, slick surface and organisms just have a hard time attaching to it. Um, I have heard of some really interesting technologies out there um, that do have a, a sort of way to repel um any types of marine life from attaching onto it. And, you mm-hmm. know, they're, they're a little bit more high tech. Um, actually, Kim, I might've heard of it from, from you. Um, I think one of Hull your- Shield is one of our sponsors that has yeah. an anti-fouling um, device um, that goes and it's a uh, supersonic or some kind of sonic um, device that goes on the bottom of the boat and it, it works to prevent the growth of, of any of those organisms on the bottom of the boat. So, um, you know, I've heard rave reviews of that and not only is it more environmentally friendly, but, um, it can save you money of having to, you know, repaint the bottom and have the bottom scraped and all of those things. So, um, Mm -hmm. definitely a newer technology and something that's, that's emerging, um, but something to check out. And that one that in particular is whole shield and they're a sponsor and they give AGLCA members a discount. So certainly something to look at. Um, I also want, I want to talk a little bit about just kind of, um, you know, general navigation and anchoring and what can loopers do as they're out there, particularly when they hit the Gulf and they hit, um, you know, the Florida Keys, which is a very sensitive ecosystem. What should we be looking out for when we are navigating and anchoring to make sure that we're not damaging those coral reefs or what, you know, running into a manatee or any of those, those things that we want to all avoid doing. 
Well, the, the, the first easy answer there is mooring balls, mooring balls. Uh, mm -hmm. See if, you know, wherever you're going to be, if they have mooring balls, then great. Um, you're basically not taking this very large, uh, you know, fork and just scraping it along the bottom, which is basically what our anchors do every mm -hmm. once in a while. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, just be aware. And, and you know, most places that need that extra protection, um, hopefully they will already have mooring balls in place. Um, so yeah, just, you know, be mindful and also seagrasses are super important. And that's another thing that can suffer from anchoring. Um, so again, you know, if, if you're in a seagrass heavy, uh, area, um, just, you know, hopefully there are some mooring balls around. Um, and, and yeah, I would say just, and, and if you do have to drop anchor, do so carefully, try not to drag it. Um, those are my kind of my two cents, but Aubrey, I don't know if you have any. Yeah, not dragging your anchor is great. Making sure that you're in a designated anchor area so that you're not, mm -hmm. you know, disturbing areas that haven't had anchors dropped on them before. So if you're in, in a designated anchoring area, then, you know, you'll, you know that the seabed isn't going to be quite as abundant with life. Um, mm -hmm. And two, just on your navigation as well, just, you know, being familiar with your vessel, the more, the more that you know about it, like, you know, for example, yeah, you're your depth transponder might not be at the lowest point of your vessel. So um, knowing what the offset is. So if you you see that, oh, I have three feet below the boat, um, but you're measuring from the water line and you have your draft to take into account, then uh, you know that you might not be uh, in a good place. So knowing where, where your depth transducer is actually located and what you might have to account for and offset that being familiar with your vessel's actual draft and what the depths are using charts some people you know forget to use their charts forget to use their instruments to plan their route in advance and might just wing it if they seem familiar with an area but it's it's quite important to understanding what could be there and and any hazards along the way absolutely yeah. and, and go ahead Tony so, no, I was just going to say on that same note, um, updating your charts. I know a lot of people have like Navionics and things like that, mm -hmm. and 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 you want to hope and and or, or or try to always have the most up to date because things like shoals and and other areas, you know, they, they can change from one month to the next. And again, that's another funny, I guess, if not <laughs> somewhat scary experience I once had, um, where we were on a hundred foot yacht and the captain had to put both sticks I mean like as fast as he could in full reverse um because uh you know something had shifted in, in the shoals and it just wasn't reflected on his charts and so it was his his mate who was watching the depth uh the depth kind of going up and up and up and up or, or rather <laughs> the number going down 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 and he said, hey, I think uh, we're going to hit. And then, yeah, so um, we didn't. We avoided that. Um, but but that's why, you know, you want to make sure that if you are relying on charts or you're in a place that you haven't been before, just um, hope hope that you have the most up-to-date charts. <laughs> yes. And that's kind of a, a unwritten rule for loopers to begin with. I think all of us have some um, fear and trepidation about the potential of running aground like that. Um, so Doing so on a coral reef or where there's a lot of wildlife is even more damaging, not just to the boat, but to the coral reef. Um, but so the point is, if just protecting our boat is not enough of a reason for some of us to do these right things, 
the fact that it is the best thing for the waterways is also a really good reason to avoid that. Um, and as I mentioned, the Florida Keys is one of the most, probably the most sensitive ecological place, I would say, on the Great Loop. And because of that, there are some extra regulations around anchoring and things like that. So if you're headed for the Keys, just make sure you check that out. Um, mm -hmm. Aubrey and Tony, anything else that I have not asked about? Um, you know, I, I don't I don't think we cover any any suggestions you have for boaters. Um, you know, we're sharing the water with marine life. Some of those uh species like manatee are rather large. Um, you know, some we've been to the Keys and seen, you know, a sea turtle hospital where some of the shells, they the boats, the turtles had been hit by boats. What can boaters do to, you know, somehow find a better way to keep an eye on the wildlife so we're not doing damage to the animals on our way? Um, yeah, I mean, well, I guess the, the quick and easy answer to that is just to educate yourself on what marine life is in that area. You know, if you're in a manatee heavy area, you know that you need to keep a really active and vigilant watch out. Um, have a look out on your bow even, or or just if your, you know, bridge is in a good position to be able to see things below you. Um, wear polarized glasses so you can see kind of slightly beneath the water, see what animals are kind of there. Um, really respect no wake zones because those are put in place to protect wildlife like marine mammals or turtles because the, those hits can be fatal to turtles and manatees. Um, and, you know, if you do see something in the water, slow down. Not only will it give you time to enjoy and look at the animal, but it'll also increase your reaction time and make sure that in case there are other animals present with it, like if, if there's a mom with its baby, you know, manatee cruising around together, you are slowed down enough so that you can maneuver and avoid hitting one. Excellent. These are great tips. We are going to um, post a link to the Green Guide to Boating um, in the comments on all of the different channels where we post this, but if uh, people want to go directly to your site, can they get the green guide to boating there? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On our site, they'll be able to find the green guide to boating and also be able to sign up to become a discovery yacht if they're interested as well. Yeah. Excellent. And so just, just to, to go, yeah, go ahead, I was going to say, just to point you in, in the exact right direction, if they want to see that um, under our work, uh, there's a section called the green Marine program. And under that, the, the green guide to boating is there. Um, but like Aubrey said, you know, our whole website is there and there are links to actually becoming uh, a discovery yacht. If you'd like to experience something really, really cool, um, and, you know, just let us know and, and we'll we'll get you set up. Yeah, excellent. So once again, it is the International Sea Keepers Society is the full name of the organization. And the website is seakeepers.org. So easy to find. Um, lots of resources on the website. Aubrey and Tony, I want to thank you for joining us. Aubrey, again, is the program development manager, and Tony Gilbert is the chief program officer for the International Seakeeper Society, seakeepers.org. Uh, thank you for joining us and for sharing all these tips. Yeah, thank, thank you. I also want to give a quick shout out to Mary Grace Bolin. She is our um, high school intern and uh, she really, she is an aspiring uh, marine scientist and she uh, thoroughly enjoyed going through the Green Guide to Boating and helping construct these questions. So Mary Grace, I know you're going to be listening to this. Thank you for helping with that as well. And thanks to everyone who has watched or listened to this week. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Great Loop Radio podcast. Until then, safe cruising.